This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Now, we've all heard of Jane Jacobs, the urban activist who wrote the text that underpins a large portion of town planning theory. But have you heard of Anne Nan? I hadn't until recently. In fact, if my research is correct, Anne Nan was actually an early influence to Jane Jacobs. Anne was a former Royal Air Force pilot without formal architectural qualifications, but who became a famous and outspoken architectural critic and coined the word subtopia, referring to those areas around cities that had in view been failed by urban planning, losing their individuality and spirit of place. To hear more about Ian, today we're talking with Matt Roberts from the About Buildings and Cities podcast based in the UK. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much for having me, Jess. And now before we get on to Ian then, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. So I am an architectural historian. I am based in Cambridge in the UK. Um, I'm currently doing a PhD looking at 17th and 18th century, uh, so early modern architecture in Britain. Um, but for a few years now, I've been part of editing, occasionally co-hosting this podcast called About Buildings and Cities, where, where we try to think about architecture in new and different ways. So we use novels and films as roots in ways to talk about architecture. We will talk about big name architects. We're doing a series about Andrea Palladio at the moment, um, but also we like to talk about architectural culture more broadly. And um, I guess I'm here because last year we did a season of episodes about Ian Nan, uh, who was someone who's always been very dear to my heart um, and who was an early influence on me in terms of getting into architecture and, and becoming interested in it. And Matt, that's how I came across your podcast, because I was doing some research on Sir John Betjeman. Um, mm. I, I love his poetry, and but he was very much against a lot of the city development post-war, and that's how I came across Ian Dan, and that's how we're here today. There you and, go. It's the magic <laughs> of the internet. It, it, magic of the internet. And with your podcast, do you have specific listeners in mind? Um. That's a good question. I mean, we talk a lot about the idea that you have, it's a niche and narrow subject matter in some ways. It's something that affects us all every day, the buildings that we live and work in. Um, but also architecture can sometimes be quite closeted, quite specialist. Um, it can have its own jargon, can get caught in its own loops of discourse so we're interested in people who are already have that seed of wanting to think about the environment whether they're in architecture or not in architecture um, but we hope to bring kind of new approaches new ways of thinking about the buildings that surround us um, through different yeah forms of media I suppose and do you receive much feedback on your podcast? Um, yeah, we I, I um, run the social media feeds for the show and I find quite often people will 
you know, get in touch, say that they had been to visit a building, but that our conversation about it had sort of made them think about it in a new light, or that we'd introduced them to a film director that they then got really interested in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think podcasting, it's an interesting medium. Sometimes people are looking for something vaguely interesting, but fundamentally that's a bit of sort of audio wallpaper. <laughs> um, people want to have something, um, it's like radio, you know, people want to have something nice on in the background when they're, um, when they're doing the chores or whatever. So yeah, we try to be entertaining as well as just informative. And you definitely sound like you have a good time. So it's always a good sign of a good podcast, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, and much like Ian then, we often end up in the pub after, um, <laughs> not so often before uh, recording <laughs> sessions. But That's but yes. where the best podcasts come from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Matt, just going on to Ian then, can you just give our listeners a bit of a brief bio beyond what I mentioned a bit earlier? Yeah, of course. So Nan is born in 1930. Um, his father was working as an aerospace engineer um, initially on a catastrophically unsuccessful project to build Zeppelins, um, a, a, a project that goes down kind of in infamy uh, as a like moment of 1930s but, British Matt, engineering. But to people who don't know what a Zeppelin is, can you just... Sorry, like an airship, like a blimp um like uh you know fills up with helium or more historically hydrogen um but yeah he's born into this sort of middle class home counties the posh bit of kind of suburban outer london uh commuter belt around london and the kind of towns in the counties around um his father has this technical um professional um, career he goes and does maths at the University of Birmingham so he very much doesn't have uh, an architectural a formal architectural education he then goes after the second world war um, because national services in effect he goes and trains to be a, a, a fighter pilot um, and he's based in East Anglia and he's flying Gloucester meteors and it's around that time that he kind of first gets seriously interested in architecture um, and it's this very uh, very idiosyncratic experience where he's seeing buildings he's seeing the changing towns of England from the plane that he's learned the jet fighter pilot uh, jet fighter plane that he's learning to fly as part of his national service and he then goes on to develop uh well actually just one quick thought there which is um Around this time, there's an architectural historian called John Summerson, who writes a book called George in London, which is about London in the 18th century. And he opens that up with a kind of satellite view of London. And he kind of maps out the way that the city changed over the course of the 18th century. Um, and I think it's kind of funny and kind of um, poetic that Nan um, first got his kind of architectural in interest from uh, yeah, from the window of a, of a fighter plane. Um, and then he also, as he's getting more and more interested in architecture, he's looking for ways to get into architectural culture. He's communicating with the librarian at the Soane Museum um, and saying that he thinks he is 
has spotted a John Soane country house somewhere in Suffolk that isn't generally known about, but he thinks he can identify it as a John Soane house from the window of his plane and he's going to drive and visit it. Um, and yeah, he comes to London after his service is finished. He basically just goes, hangs out on the doorstep of the architectural press um, and eventually convinces them to give him a job. And then pretty quickly, he produces the magnum opus that will make his reputation um, and is kind of the first salvo of his career. Um, this special edition of the Architectural Review, which is called Outrage and is based on a trip from the very south to the very north of England by car uh, and is an attempt to document what he sees as the great crimes that are being committed against the English urban and rural landscape. Um, yes, and they, it's a huge success. It sells for the Architectural Reviews, this kind of niche professional magazine, monthly, very much of the architectural establishment, um, Nairn very much outside that world, but a firmly committed uh, kind of advocate for better buildings and an incredible prose stylist. And he kind of forces himself in and makes this project come together. Um, and it sells enormously well, much, much better than the architectural review usually sold. Um, so it clearly strikes a chord. And was it selling outside of the architectural world? Like, was it selling to, you know, the general public as well? That edition, that special edition, it catches, like, the imagination of the general public. So, yeah, it definitely gets into kind of circulation. I'm pretty sure Subtopia, the word, as you allude to, that he coined for it, which is a kind of portmanteau of... Um, suburbia and utopia um, but also you know it's playing like subtopia below like not as good as um, subpar um, but that word kind of gets into the lexicon it turns up in uh, lots of newspaper articles I think even um, the Duke of Edinburgh mentions it in a speech um, and I mean, it, there's lots of things that he's angry about and campaigning against, but one of the things that is a bet noir in broader English public to this day is like ugly electric lamps, ugly, ugly street light, lighting, street furniture. And then in outrage is extremely upset about gas lamps um, being phased out in exchange for ele electric light. Um, and there was actually one instance of a man, I think, in Kent, who was not an architectural professional, but like saw Nairn's vision and he chained himself to a gas lamp that the council were threatening to replace with an electric lamp. So, it, you know, it did inspire people to these, you know, acts of political direct action. Um, and it, it struck a broader chord, I think. And I guess it's holding the, the local government there to account, really, isn't it, in, in post-Second World War? Uh, yeah, I think it just, I think it offered a frame for which, in, a, a frame through which people could voice their unhappiness with the way that things around them looked. Yeah. Just just going back to that term, subtopia, Matt, um, mm. 
Are you able just to give a bit of an illustration because our listeners are um, predominantly, you know, within Australia, but also international as well. What did the sub the subtopia areas that Ian was referring to? What did they look like post Second World War? Okay, well, the first thing I'd say is that subtopia, when Ian's talking about it, is is as much about like a fearful prediction of what's coming and the first like he's worried that everywhere is going to be subtopia at some point and what he means by that it's it's got some of our connotations today of like sprawl and of kind of suburbia kind of um anonymous placeless um like you know spec developer built um housing estates um like low density but also he's kind of specifically concerned about as i've said like street furniture like concrete tarmac the kind of fading away at the hard hard edge between towns and the countryside the idea that with um you know, an enormous amount of land during the Second World War was turned over to military use, obviously, and that brings with it all this infrastructural, like, detritus, you know, wire fences, um, pylons, concrete foundations for radio masts, and a lot of that land that was promised to be handed back over to public use was being kept longer and I mean, there are places in the UK that um, were commandeered by the military for practice for like um, war games and stuff during the Second World War that still haven't been returned <laughs> to um, you know the people that used to live there um, eight years later. And I think generally it's accepted that they're never going to go back. But he is yeah concerned with this kind of wearing down of a distinction between. The places where people live in dense urban and like town settings and then everything else that just everything was kind of becoming this indefinable was it like nowhere town matt nowhere town yeah everything the yeah. same and and, and, and also that, it, that, it, that those places were losing a lot of the historical character characteristics um, like he hates a lot of modern signage. He hates um, like road signs. He hates um, is that standardization. But is standardization also, exactly? Yeah. And Matt, I suppose the loss of localism and local distinctive building materials and styles was that also part of it? And also, you know, gas gas lights turning to electric lights doesn't sound like a big deal, but maybe it reflects the coarseness of design in the public realm did you think and yeah yeah i mean i think i think we're touching on the edge of kind of a a big question about nan which is the extent to which he is an opponent of like modernism broadly conceived and the extent to which he is specifically an opponent of like things that are not well thought through things that are badly designed things that are too much 
done for profit without actually much care for the people um, that live there. And I, I think I think he's you talked about Betjeman at the beginning and like Betjeman, there's a broader circle of people like Clough Williams Ellis who are angry about suburban sprawl in the interwar period. And they are very explicitly opposed to modernism. Whereas Nairn, I think, is opposed to bad design <laughs> uh, and thoughtless design. Matt, Matt, can we just talk, set the scene? He wrote Outrage, I think, in 55 or something. But can yep. you just set the scene for what was happening in the UK and probably uh, UK in terms of the, the need for housing, the, the, the pent-up demand for a lot of things? Um, and also it was a time of utopian type modernist ideas with architecture and planning and you know slum clearing and the towers and but also th there was a massive need for new accommodation it's, there's a lot of development push on at that time yeah, yeah absolutely so you have huge um, amounts of destruction of the housing stock um, in lots of English towns and cities um, as a result of the Blitz, so as a result of um, bombing raids by um, the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. You also have um, a lot of housing generally built in the Victorian period that through a combination of economic depression in um, British cities, and I mean, you know, the British economy in the post-war period is in a really bad place um, in lots of ways. There's massive amounts of war debt that have been accrued. There continues to be rationing um, well into the 1950s. Um, you also have this very restricted um, ability to build because of shortage of materials, because of that like economic context. Um, the government has these things called uh, building licenses and you basically have to have a license and there's a limited number of licenses um, to build and then as you move into the as you move into the 50s some of that economic picture starts to change and you've got very significant shifts in patterns of population so you've got lots of people moving out of those like bombed out city interiors but then you also got huge amounts of building going on inside those um city contexts and you have the like development of post-war commercial property in lots of areas that were previously a bit more residential um there's i mean you know it's an extremely complicated picture but yeah you're you're right broadly it's it's a period of um a long repression of housing supply leading to a huge boom um, and also unprecedented growth in the ability of the state um, to fulfill that housing need. Um, and you know there's a uh, there's a stat which I am just going to quickly grab. Uh, you can edit this out. Uh, I have it written down in my notes folder, which I didn't have open before but the stat is that 
uh, here we go. In, in 1964, 25% of British families lived in houses or homes that had been built since 1951. So a quarter of the housing stock in 1964 had been built in the previous 13 years. So that absolute explosion is the kind of context in which um, this is happening. Matt, you mentioned, oh, that's an incredible stat, but you mentioned the Luftwaffe. Didn't Nan say that the Luftwaffe in their bombing had done less damage to British cities than the town planners and architects post-war? Did he say something like that? So this is kind of a... Um, uh, this is a kind of kind of a, a quote that goes around. I have not seen any firm attribution of that to Nen, uh, of that idea to Nen. And yeah, I mean, his relationship to like planning and to um, the urban potential mo of modernism is is a really problematic one because when he's writing outrages, like a lot of the stuff that we come to associate with the failures of post-war planning, like the large-scale destruction of historic um, um, fabric of the, of the city and uh, the like forcing in of car infrastructure. Uh, in 1955, like not that much of that had really started like fully going yet and and he, he he's not like wholly critical of that i mean firstly he loves cars he loves the potential of the car um he loves like driving around but he also hates some of the ephemera of the built environment that come with like having large numbers of cars but equally like there's a bit in his book about british towns where he goes and he's standing under one of the um like off ramps of the ring road of the motorway in Birmingham, which is generally now viewed as like catastrophic failure of modernist post-war planning. And Ian then is like, this is so thrilling. These buses are flying down this ramp and it brings all this drama and excitement to the city. I mean, like, I don't particularly agree with him on that one, but I think it's, yeah, I think at the time, people um, understood, yeah, his, his relationship to modernism and to like post-war planning is much more vexed and complicated than many people would presume. That, that makes him a lot but, more interesting, Matt, don't you think? Oh, uh, 100%. As I, I, I wouldn't really give him... Uh, the kind of love that I give him if if he w was a kind of firmly um, because yeah if he was just like a, a, an absolutist about it but I think over the course of his life he does become increasingly um, morose about the failures of modernism and of and of urban planning and I mean that's the kind of one of the things that looms quite large in his legacy that we haven't really touched on yet is the fact that he, you know, drank himself to death at the age of 52, 54. Um, and he drank himself to death on beer, which is not an easy thing 
to it's not a very efficient way to drink yourself to death you have to be like really committed um he would pretty regularly get through like you know 12 15 pints a day um and towards the end of his life the output is not very good like he's continuing to write and to work and he is pretty deeply depressed i think he had a very deep emotional relationship to the built environment and he felt that a lot of the failures um it just kind of bore down on him but he really he, he really, really took everything personally by the sounds of it oh absolutely like I, a very funny character in lots of ways like i think very introverted very shy very diffident in his like personal interactions and you can see that in the tv work when he's on television they're often just getting him to improvise to 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 talk to people that live in like his neighborhood in london or whatever and he's extremely extremely awkward uh screen presence and not particularly telegenic either but um that, that that contrasts massively with his prose style which is so vituperative so fighting work like really fighting talk and he, he he loves to string a sentence together um on the page but yeah uh, a very I'm emotional of, character i'm thinking of on, on one of the um youtube uh shows where he's standing in a church that is being demolished and he rails yeah. against the vandalism and that is one of the most well it's a very impassioned plea from the heart to take stock of what you know we all have and to just bemoan the, the the official vandalism and the unofficial vandalism going to what was once a beautiful church do you know the one i'm talking about yeah it's in bolton um it's it's a really incredible bit of television insofar as he is clearly on the edge of breaking down and crying and it's funny because i think I have had those kind of emotional experiences with buildings before. And I think it's generally viewed as being a bit of a weird thing to do. But I wonder whether if people were a bit more um, able to feel those kind of deep emotional connections to their built environment, whether we might get better outcomes sometimes. I don't know. It's passion in its truest form, I'd say. Yeah, I, I, I think that was him. I think that was his mode, really, in many ways. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, Matt, um, we mentioned earlier, or I made the comparison of Ian to Jane Jacobs. Can you talk through, um, I guess, the differences between them, but also how they um, sort of informed each other's work? Yeah, well, after the huge success of Outrage in 1955 and its sequel, which is called Counterattack, which was uh, meant to be a bit more propositional, but as is often the case with Nen, um, 
didn't really make that many propositions. He knows how to criticize things and he knows things that he likes, but he doesn't really have, he's not very good at setting an agenda. Um, and after the, the tremendous success of that, he, he actually makes a trip to America um, to meet up with um, Jane Jacobs. And he goes on to write a book. They both diagnose similar problems. Well, they both like similar things, I think, crucially. They both like um, these very dense, very busy, um, very civically minded urban spaces, right? Whether it's like the Greenwich Village of Jane Jacobs's campaigns against um, the um, uh, the interstate project in Manhattan and, 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 and Robert Moses, or whether it's in then in like a Northern town, they both really like these very dense, lively urban centers. But whereas Jacob's whole career, and especially, and especially like into her later career, is about trying to forge a theory that dictates how the city should be and like gives a set of proposals for trying to replicate the success that she sees in the in the West Village elsewhere. Um, and, and she kind of has really one, I think of her as a much more um, focused on a much, a, a, a much more singular goal. Whereas Nen, I think consistently struggles to express exactly what he wants other than condemnation of bad things like the destruction of that church in Bolton. Um, and he, he seems to be, for me, much more heterogeneous in his interests. I mean, you could never imagine Jacob's talking with sort of excitement and interest about um, about an off-ramp of an, a motorway in a in a in a in in Birmingham, you know, whereas then did, <laughs> um, and I think I think that's the difference between them, and it's their strengths and their weaknesses. Like, I think Jacob's Jacob's prescriptive model for building a better city is part of what has made her, you know, a much more renowned name amongst planners. But equally, I think it leads her, especially later into her career, into like extremely messed up political positions, frankly. Um, so, yes, that would be my that would be my two cents, I guess, on Jacobs versus <clears throat> Nan. And, and Matt, we've got a, a Australian, ver well, Australian version, Robin Boyd, who wrote mm. Australian Ugliness and that book came out in the early 60s, probably no doubt influenced by Nan, no doubt. And we've set you some homework uh, to study into Robin Boyd, um, who was an architect and a, a city critic. What, what have you, what, what's your reaction to what you've learned about Robin Boyd? Well, I'm really grateful to you for introducing me to him because, um, well, firstly, he's a very interesting character and the family as well, very interesting. Um, and secondly, I was at a dinner party the other week with a couple of um, people from Melbourne and uh, the fact that I was able to wax lyrical about Robin Boyd made them both um, very excited and feel very welcomed. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. I think from my reading, I think 
it's undeniable that that Australian ugliness book is part of a broader milieu, which Nen was very influential in, but not the beginning of, um, of like cr critique of ribbon development and um, various other things. But I think in that book, it seems to me that he has something very specific um, that he develops, which is a certain kind of Australian grounded cultural um, criticism and that he seems to be talking towards the kind of relationship of the Australian state and the Australian um, sort of colonial basis of Australian society in relation to like the ecological and natural landscape of Australia. This, all this stuff about, this obsessive stuff about trees being cut down feels very rooted in that. He also seems very harsh on like the kitsch and the bad taste of like the Australian um, sort of lower middle classes, um, which I think if he had spent a fair bit of time in the kind of places that Ian Nairn grew up, would realise was not a like particularly Australian um, problem. I think the, the thing that strikes me about Boyd's career that is very different to Nen is that he is from this like place of quite significant cultural capital, right? Like the Boyd family are these titans of the kind of Australian arts and cultural world. He's a, a practicing architect and builds these kind of amazing but soaked into the um, context in which they're being built, these amazing sort of villa uh, buildings. Um, and, and also like anti-development spec, but relatively modest suburban houses. And the fact that he's a practicing architect as well as a critic makes him a pretty singular figure really, or like it's pretty uncommon um, that you get people that do that kind of very popular criticism and are architects. I mean, the thing that speaks to that for me is I also read one of his later essays, I think actually just before he died, an essay called Anti-Architecture, which feels to me to be like so not of the world of Ian then. Um, like it's pure kind of high university architecture school theory. Um, and it's incredibly competent. It reminds me of a kind of precursor to like work that later someone like Charles Jenks would be um, writing. But, you know, this incredible kind of like diagnosis of the pathologies of certain architectural tendencies and like groupings and schools and then a kind of immaculate deconstruction of, um, yeah, the problem with people that say that they produce, quote unquote, anti-architecture. I. I, I, I was not familiar with that piece of writing and I'm very glad that I am now. He's um, <clears throat> an interesting voice. It, it sounds like a high church um, uh, architecture. But one thing about um, Boyd that not many people know is that he ran the 10 pound plan uh, scheme, Matt, where re readers to a certain paper in Melbourne, The Age, could get architectural mm. plans from up and coming architects to 
you know, to, to build their own houses and things and ten, for, wow. for, a cost of, for a cost of 10 pounds. So he was time, trying to democratise good architecture as well. Maybe That's amazing. I didn't know that. I missed that in the reading. That's such a cool um, scheme. God, we should do more of that. <laughs> well, 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 Jeffrey Searle wrote a great biography on him. So maybe your podcast about buildings and cities could do something on board at some stage. But yeah, just, I mean, I'm definitely going to, I'll definitely get that biography. That sounds, sounds get, like a great read. But, but you, on that point about critics more generally, um, it, Nian was very outspoken critic at the, at the against consensus sort of views on mm. city development and building at the time. <clears throat> do you think we've lost our tolerance these days for critics of you know consensus in architectural planning or those sorts of things you know that the, the spectra being cancelled is there as much sort of eclectic thought going on these days in our professions big big question what do you think yeah huge question well i mean the first thing you got to do is like think about how radically different the um kind of media and discourse context um, i don't mean in terms of tone or anything I, I just mean in terms of practicalities um feels like in many ways the cultural conversation is much more fragmented um you know not everyone is watching you know there's just this, this, the internet creates this huge plurality of potential sources of information. Um, and that fragmentation means that it's more difficult for someone like Nen did to, you know, or, you know, other architectural critics of that post-war period to like be the architectural critic who writes for the architecture review or the uh, daily newspaper with a mass readership, you know, it, in some ways it feels like our capacity to have complex and high level conversations that feel genuinely like mass like population level has decayed. I think that's for better and for worse in lots of ways. I don't, I'm not, I'm not convinced about the, the like cancel culture argument. Um, I mean, what are the what are the um, what if Nan was alive today? What are the kind of sacred cows, the kind of generally agreed axiomatic truths of modern contemporary planning that like need slaying? I don't. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think what well, they are. It feels well, like well, it feels well, like we've moved to a place of much greater consensus than we used to be in. It, it, but is that a good thing, Matt? Because what, you know, I, I think we might be complacent in our in our <clears throat> knowledge of how we've solved the puzzle or we've solved the, the solution. Um, like we've got planning policies that are now, you know, 30, 40 years in practice. And mm. our, our cities are exactly the same, pretty much. Um, which yeah. is, uh, so I, I'm... I think maybe each generation thinks it's smarter than others and has yeah. solved all the problems. And I think we need, we need critics. We need people to yeah. stand, we need the lunatics to stand yeah. outside and say, 
uh, guys, you know, the Emperor's got no clothes. And yeah, for what, sure. What do you think, Jess? We, we need more Mavericks, Jess? You know what I'm going to say, Pete? Matt, um, Pete is the ANN of Australian planning. Yeah. <laughs> Jess, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. I, I would, I, you've put me in very high company, but I don't, do, I don't drink 12 pints a day. <laughs> I've been tilting at windmills for a long time, Matt, but uh, I'm, I'm getting Jess. Jess is coming across slowly. I'm saying take the red pill and she's, she's going she's gonna to do it at some stage, but um, and, and onto well, his guidebooks. I, we can um, we can cut this if you want, but I'm, I'd be kind of interested, Peter. What's the what's the what's the program that you feel is like not sayable, but that you are a kind of advocate for? If you were to like summarise it, uh, I, I, I think we've got very high cost of housing, but mm. very very high cost of housing. There's more and more uh, disbursement of opportunities. I'm oh, sorry there's more concentration of opportunities. Mm. Uh, I think we need to experiment. I think that the clustering of high density in certain locations and not medium rise in the suburbs is like a mm. critical folly. I think mm. a lot of planning control, planning practice is very anti. It's, it, there's a lot of resistance in the system to change to new things mm. uh i think the system is very much tilted against smaller developers uh mm. and i think there is too much uh sponsorship by the state in such a way that uh criticism of the state can't be made so mm. i i think that they're in the planning well, profession there's you know, a consensus view. And if you're outside yes. that view, you don't get heard. That's in a nutshell. And, and plenty yeah, more. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I think, I feel like that in some ways, I, again, I just not that au fait with the Australian context, but in some ways, the idea that what we need is like a really significant mid-rise, high density transformation of the kind of, inner suburbia um that feels like something that feels like something that everyone or that it feels like something that a lot of people in planning discourse agrees with um I, that doesn't feel like such a uh a maverick take in a uk context the problem is <laughs> everyone in everyone in planning agrees that that's like the optimal you know, environmental, economic, etc., route, but th the resistance is partially from the state, but it's from the state because the state represents the interests of people with an enormous amount of political influence, i.e., the people that own <laughs> those um, two-story houses in the you know inner suburban ring of cities or like you know in the in like zone two of london say um and that they are unwilling to do what needs to be done which is like yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure whether developers well, well matt maybe on uh, their I own will manage to do that maybe i didn't express it but it's not so much the inner city but it's mm. the middle ring suburbs and it's the outer suburbs and i'll, I'll give you an example people who are close to greenery mm. 
are much better psychologically than people who aren't. We've got fantastic, massive suburban parks in Melbourne, for example. Mm. I'm sure every other city has. I think it would be fantastic to have like four or five storey uh, housing around those parks mm. because people and but with the obsessive focus on medium density being or higher density or medium density being on transport routes i yeah. think we need to factor in many more things so but yes. if you if you propose that you would not even you would not even the idea wouldn't get the light of day uh, and so there's that's that complacency but yeah, no, that, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it seems to me, and the thing that that makes me think of in terms of a historical model for that, the kind of um, program that you outlined there, um, something like the Camden Borough Architects um, Office under Sydney Cook in the 1960s and 1970s had quite a lot of success at transforming, transforming what is the kind of inner suburban ring of of London at that point into these um, medium rise, but very high density modernist housing estates. And yeah, I just wonder whether, I wonder whether this, the, the, the problem, the barrier to achieving that, that you've identified is actually like the state enacting the interests of property owners and whether actually the only way out of that situation is like, through development guided by state action, or, or at least that historically that's been the most uh, uh, effective uh, tool to achieve uh, that. Matt, Matt, I think it starts with a state of mind and mm. a, a state of uh, experimentation. And the state doesn't need to override property owners in these cases. And But anyway, well, I've, I've taken you on a tour of Melbourne. Yeah, no, I'm, that was we... really enjoyable though, Peter. Thank but, you for that. Um, sorry, Jess, how about we move on to guidebooks? <laughs> no problems. So, um, Matt, going back to Nan again, um, he, from what I understand, he did author a number of different guidebooks, including one specifically about London. What was different mm. about these guidebooks, especially that London one? So Nan's London is, for my money, like one of the best books of the 20th century. Readers, or, or sorry, listeners to this, um, if you've never heard of it, Get yourself, get your hands on a copy. I think there are PDFs of it that you can get illegally on online, even if you've never been to London. It's just this incredible sketch of a city in a specific moment. And he captures something of the spirit of the city um, through a combination of very deep knowledge, his very idiosyncratic interests, and his like incredible ability to write about buildings so it's a guidebook right it it is structured as a series of walks through london and along each of those walks it there are little entries for buildings that no wants to write about there are um lots of weird choices he's very interested in writing about the outer reaches of the city um well into sort of Essex, Bromley, places that often don't get considered part of London really at all. Um, and he misses out some really obvious things because he thinks they're boring or he just can't be bothered to talk about them. And he focuses in on some really random and idiosyncratic things. Um, he has an amazing 
way of talking you through the city where he will say, to get the best view of this building, you have to get off the bus here at this bus stop, and then you need to walk 50 yards down the road and then look to your left, and that's where you'll get the best view of um, Westminster Abbey. Or, you know, uh, the best way to see St Paul's is on the bus coming up Ludgate Hill. Um, so it's really a kind of embodied critical architectural account of the city. And so he's really thinking about how we experience buildings um, as we move around um, urban spaces. He also just has this way of writing. He's very interested in trying to express fundamental qualities about the formal design of the buildings. So things will be hunched over, you know, he anthropomorphizes buildings all the time or gives them a sense of motion. Um, columns will clank together um, upwards or, you know, they will... Uh, there's even a church that he describes as being uh, like a Labrador. <laughs> and there's just all these kind of amazing, as we were talking about earlier, he has this deep emotional connection to the buildings. And that comes through in the prose. He also is of this kind of, he's a young fogey. He's also like an angry young man. Um, Kenneth Tynan was a theatre critic, uh, kind of contemporaneous figure who is very shocking in his use of language and like freeness to talk about sex and violence. And Nen will go up to um, something like um, All Saints Margaret Street, which is a William Busfield high Gothic revival um, Anglo-Catholic church. And he will say, not only that it, it has the spirit of Wuthering Heights um, of which it's a product of the same decade, but um, that it reminds him of nothing so much as an orgasm, <laughs> you know? And nice. again, he's, I mean, he's being kind of deliberately fun and provocative there, I think, but it's, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible skill to mm. evoke such emotion uh, about buildings. I, I'd love to see the building that he described as a Labrador, my favourite, my favourite dog, uh, Matt, but um... He, he I also track made that reference down. Thank you. He he also made a number of TV programs, which were pretty popular. What sort mm. of um, and that built on his earlier work. Did that that did that resonate? Did they resonate with the public as well? Yeah, I mean, I think they were generally pretty widely watched and pretty well liked. Um, the biography of Nan um, that was edited by Julian Dolly, has a really good set of um, like BBC audience research reports in it. Uh, and I think the consensus from the audiences that were, um, uh, were polled, they found it interesting, but not gripping. <laughs> um, and he, it, you know, he has a very funny way of being on the screen. I've already said he's not very telegenic. They're not very well they're not very thoroughly planned. They were often the product of a lot of booze, but um, as kind of testaments to some of the failures of um, urban planning in the period, they, I think, did genuinely strike a chord. And they've had a huge like revival in popularity on YouTube. Um, some of those clips 
have like hundreds of thousands, maybe not hundreds, tens of thousands of views, certainly. Um, so yeah, there's something kind of thrilling about how unpolished it is. <laughs> um, and I think his, his, his prose writing is so lively, but so well considered. And it feels like he's, you're getting a, a perspective in on the way that he works ideas out. Um, the results are not always as good as the writing is, but it is incredible to, to watch. And Matt, in some of those programs, for example, in the North, he visits secondary towns such as Wigan and points out urban design lessons before this profession even existed. Can you talk a little mm. bit about this? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I think, I think he did, I think you're exactly right. I think he like captured certain ideas about how towns can be laid out and thought through that even if they didn't come into broader understanding directly through him, he kind of managed to strike a chord with a way that, that, that thinking was moving. I mean, for me, one of the things that he's just so good at is at writing about topography. Um, and I think it's in Wigan that he talks about quite explicitly about the way that it, the town sits in the countryside and the way that the, you can see out of the town from the town. Um, and also about the way that Victorian parts of towns should be redeveloped i suppose i'm trying to remember is there a specific angle in the wigan well, one that you're well, thinking maybe of? in wigan he's talking about the marketplace and mm. how the small the more the small shops and how he was just observing how people move around and that, that, that was sort of like urban design principles that are you know drummed into students now but he was just observing how that human scale worked i suppose as well as the the steps are here and the passages here, but how people interacted to their, their built form. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's nothing that will make him angrier than a kind of a town that doesn't manage to channel the economic and civic life um, into its architectural formulation. Like there's a particularly memorable bit when he's in Barnsley, um, kind of another northern secondary town um and he's standing in this kind of um slightly desolate market square with a load of recent demolition on one side of it and he says uh, look at this it's it's like the russian troops have just been through <laughs> um so he does have this uh yeah this real fixation on busy the busy urban scene um and i think it connects interestingly to his interest in the pub um and perhaps like his slightly lonely and depressive and introvert character he would often i mean as is necessary with all his drinking like he'd often work in the pub and i think he really enjoys that sense of being amongst people in the city i think he found that very even if you're not like with specifically even if you're on your own you don't feel on your own when you're in a busy urban 
scene. Um, and I think I think that's part of his. He he was an awkward amateur, maybe Matt. I mean, we yeah. did his presentation, but um, there are for, for listeners who want to follow up on this. Um, there's a number of good U- U- YouTube documentaries uh, and his films, and there's one I think a mm-hmm. BBC documentary, "The Man Who Fought the Town Planners." Yeah. You would recommend that search? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, well, I, I think I strongly recommend like getting a copy of Nan's London and re- reading it. I strongly recommend going on YouTube and watching even just the like four or five minute clips of him in random, like in Northampton or somewhere. It's just a uh, real joy to watch, really capture something of the time. And The Man That Fought the Planets is a really good, um, it's a really good and quite rare moment of the BBC like um retrospectively uh celebrating what was good about the materials that they used to make that they don't make so much anymore (laughs) um yeah I mean that's the sadness for me is I think um struggle to imagine the BBC commissioning things like that today both because of the amateurishness of some of it, but also, yeah, I, I think a lot of public television producing has been extremely uh, dumbed down, basically, or like uninterested in um, asking really interesting and provocative questions. And I think you're right. That's exactly why I found... Um, a lot of these these small clips and the doppos on air nan really interesting because it's just the side of um a side of someone that you don't often see particularly on tv um and mm. sort of goes back to what pete was saying earlier about the need to have these critical voices within our industries to keep us on our toes and um keep keep conversation and dialogue like this going um because mm. it really is a bit of a dying breed um now, on a more personal note, have you, and, and if you haven't done this, I think you should do this. Um, is, there, is there someone that has compiled some of these amazing one-liners from Ian Nan into some form of um, merchandise or yeah. uh, <laughs> something? Because I feel like I want a T-shirt with one of his slogans on it. Yeah, no, I I haven't done that, but... Um... You might want to, um, yeah, you might want to copyright that because otherwise, <laughs> I, I, I think I think you definitely get some uh, some traction with it. Oh, he was just an incredible like wordsmith. Mm. Um, I think there was there was another line that I read somewhere um, where he described a building as sheer visual misery to the passerby. <laughs> <laughs> <It's gold. laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, spectacularly good. But, oh, and, and this goes to what Jess was saying. Yeah, he has a simple grave marker, which includes mm. the expression "a man without a mask." Um, what what do you think? That's a fitting sort of marker or description of him. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I highly doubt that was his um, choice. I mean, it speaks to the kind of tragic. Um, context of his death in some ways um, I I think it does speak to him it speaks to his architectural criticism at his best 
Um, he was totally. What, just plain something, speaking some, or something plain from the speaking. heart? He, 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 didn't he, was, care. he, was, he didn't care what... Something I, that people have talked about is that, that he was unclubbable, right? He was unswayed um, by the kind of promises of joining a elite circle of architects. And he was kind of, he was, he was unwilling to get institutionalized in certain ways. And I think the emotional toil that feeling so strongly about the failures of the environment um, took on him contributed to his alcoholism and to his early death but it also contributed to how spectacular the work is so yeah I think I think he was a man without a mask um, certainly unwilling to like compromise on his beliefs in the pursuit of a more secure um, Stature and Matt on his grave is an excuse my Latin uh, horror e sempra now and always. Ha, has his has he had a lasting impact on urban development and architecture, or even guidebooks? What what sort of legacy do you think he's he's left us? I mean, I think he's left us lots of things and if you're talking about his direct influence I think he clearly has been incredibly influential on lots of slightly um maverick um writers and thinkers about the built environment I mean um another personal favorite of mine insofar as someone else who made amazing documentaries to the BBC about architecture is Jonathan Meads um and Jonathan Meads um, you know, read Nen obsessively. Um, I should say, sorry, Jonathan Meads, yeah, made architecture documentaries um, and, and wrote novels and books um, for the BBC. And you can see direct influences um, on, on his work, although in many ways he like corrects for some of the failures. Um, and then in the work of someone like Owen Hathley, I think he very much is continuing on in a sorry, who is a, an architectural and cultural critic, um, kind of very much on the left writing in the UK. Um, he very much is a direct intellectual descendant of Nairn, I would say. Um, I mean, more broadly, if, if Nairn isn't influencing um, things, then he bloody well should be. And that's kind of why we made the series about him, because I think... I think um, Everyone is enriched by, you don't have to agree with all of it by any stretch of the imagination, but it's enriching to engage with the material, um, certainly. And I think he got a lot of things right. I, I'm not sure if I'd like attribute it to him that they that, that, that things happened, but I, I think generally he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And Matt, if Ian was alive today, what would you say to him? Um, or, or, or ask him. What would you ask him? Yeah. As well as say to him? I mean, firstly, I'd say to him, like, get some therapy and lay off the booze.
um, because <laughs> I, I mean, like, I would need to sit down because I feel like if you threw him into the London of 2022, it would be um, so psychologically shocking that it might just kill him anyway. So I would need to like sit down and give him an architectural history lesson of like the last 40 years of like <laughs> architectural and urban development in the city. And then like, I'd want to know to what extent it conforms with the way that he saw the city going in his like depressive last stages of life. To what extent is it better than what he thought it would be? I suspect not many. Um, but yeah, it would just be an absolute joy to have his eyes on um, his eyes on the modern city, um, like a city to which his 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 guide is like one of the great great tributes to London. I think, um, yeah. Now, Matt, how um, how do you work? Uh, how does, when we've heard what you're studying. And I think you um, be a fantastic dinner party guest. I think with, with what you're studying, um, how, how do you refresh and relax? How do I refresh and relax? Well, um, so much of my life revolves around things vaguely related to uh, my work, but I do genuinely find it extremely refreshing and relaxing to like go on a drive of a weekend and go and see a go and see a building, which is. Uh, a bit tragically on form or sort of you know of a of a of a piece with what I do for a job um I love cooking let's go with that I do genuinely love cooking um and I love those sort of slightly ridiculous recipes um I um made Can you give us like, an example <laughs> well I, I made a uh, I made a ragu uh, that took like 12 hours <laughs> of um, baking in the oven. It had chicken livers in it. It had, I got pork trotters to make a gelatinous stock. Um, you know, those kinds of extremely unnecessarily extra um, and just just um, way too many steps. Uh, to be really justifiable, but just I think uh, definitely just, a dinner party. Just <laughs> yeah. I think we're coming to we're coming to Matt's place for a dinner party. Yes, yeah. we are definitely. And, and, and now we come to uh, Matt, what we call podcast extra uh, or culture corner, which are, are pinched from a UK uh, podcast, London Calling. They do the same thing. Something you've read, seen, watched, listened to late, lately that you think might be of interest to our listeners. Okay. I have an answer for this and I literally cannot recommend it strongly enough. It's a novel by a Glaswegian artist called Alistair Gray, painted these insane hallucinogenic psychedelic murals in various places in Glasgow in the 1970s. Um, and it's called Lanark, A Life in Four Books. And it, the first quarter of it is an extremely kind of Orwellian, dystopian, um, a bit of Huxley in there as well. It's very, very strange vision of a world on the edge of a grim, 
dystopian collapse. And then the middle half is a kind of semi-autobiographical social realist novel about growing up working class in Glasgow and being interested in art. And then the last quarter of it is a return to the dystopian world and some sort of resolution. It's like one of the weirdest books I've ever read, but everyone should read it. And Alistair Gray, who wrote it, the artist who wrote it, um, died, uh, I think, last year. So that's what prompted me to get it. And it's, it's really good. It's also full of illustrations by him in the style of Hogarth, in the style of the frontispiece for Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, in the style of, um, yeah, weird old engravings that he does up in a kind of 1970s, um, yeah, strongly, strongly recommend. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. And, and Jess, what's what's your podcast extra? Well, I'm still going on the wonderful book, uh, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And um, I recommended this last time as well, but it's just so good that I feel like I need to recommend it a second time. Because... Have you heard of this book, Matt? I have. I haven't read it. Um, I know that there's been quite a lot of criticism of some of the methodological... Oh, I have and like no doubt. evidence-based, um, like, like I feel like there's a couple of major studies that are cited in it that were actually done by a PR agency for Hewlett Packard and only had three people involved. And that, like some of the science is quite shaky. I have um, no and doubt. He's, he's, he's been avoiding interview and he's he's got a history of plagiarism. Oh, um, Matt, 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 you're spoiling our podcast extra. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Back to you, Jess, just My podcast extra is actually not the book. It's a couple of things that um, I guess have been triggered um, from the book, so still related. Mm. Um, but the, the main one is around um, mind-wandering. And we sort of spoke about this last time, Pete, about, um, you know, your ability to focus and the need to actually just be in the moment, read a book and sit around and actually think about what it is that you're reading. Because what I find is, and I've said this before, is I generally read before I go to bed and then mm. I fall asleep either with the book falling on my face or my Kindle falling on my face, one or the other. And I don't ever have that time to reflect upon what it is that I've actually read and what it means. And so mm. what I've actually been doing and something that does come out of that book which I'm sure there is a lot of science behind this is about just actually going for a walk without a podcast or without music or without making phone calls, but just being in the moment and actually using that time as that mind wandering time, you know, that mm -hmm. time to really focus in on what it is that you've been learning that day or, or talking about or whatever it might be. And I've just, I, I don't know, I found that it's really, it's probably just all, um, in my head, given the science is a bit shaky, but I've found that it has really helped me, um, you know, just reflect a little bit more on what it is that I'm doing. And um, I feel like- No, I totally agree with that. So I think that's um, a really good, um, I think that's a really good thing to do. I don't yeah. think the science behind that is shaky. That sounds warm. <laughs> Look, you never know these days. <laughs> and what about you, Pete? Well, I'm just going to pick up something. I'll get to- mine but just one thing that I do and not to think about things of the day or sometimes if I'm troubled or you know have difficulty going to sleep which is not that often thank goodness but what I do is I try and imagine 
I try to recall the house that I grew up in and I start in a room and then I remember what the ceiling was like. Um, you know, my old bedroom had a straw ceiling, um, which is a very Australian architecture thing from the 60s, um, or what the cupboards were like or what the bed was like or what airfix models I had hanging from the roof. Uh, and then I think about the kitchen and I just go through and it's incredible, Matt, how much of this mm. stuff comes back to you. And because I had a very happy time there, it puts me in a very good place. Or then I'll think mm. about the, then I think about the garden. We had a very big garden when I had to work in the garden all the time. So I think about all those and all these very pleasant, just physical things I remember and, and the sound of that tile that wasn't quite right when you walked on it. But that's how I sort of uh, get everything out of my head. But, but my, I don't know if you've ever done that, Matt. No, I haven't, but I'm going to try it. It uh, sounds extremely meditative. I'd love that. Yeah. And, and my podcast extra is the Japanese film festival. Each year there's a Japanese film festival where they stream uh, different Japanese films for free. It's on for a fortnight. Um, I think all countries, you know, I wish more people would do it. It just gives you, you know, it's something interesting. The Japanese films are very, very different. They're mm. from highbrow to lowbrow, you know, uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, but it's probably going to be over by the time this comes out, but keep an eye out. It's in all, it's in pretty much all countries and it's all subtitled. So that's mine. Um, but is there a particular Japanese film, Peter? Uh, well, uh, it, it depends on my mood, Matt. So, I mean, there's one called Relife where you go back, you get a second chance to go back to school, mm. <laughs> knowing what you know now. And, <laughs> uh, and there's another one I watched tonight about this woman has the power to bring, uh, to allow people to have one day with someone they know who has died. Wow. Right. And, and what would you say, what would you say to someone you've lost in that day, which, which I think, I think about sometimes as well, you know, mm. but uh, it's not a gloomy podcast listeners. It's been <laughs> terrific with Matt, our uh, architectural historian um, and cousin podcaster from the mother country, the UK. Matt, thanks so much for being a, uh, great sport and thank you so much for having me peter and, and jess i really enjoyed the questions and uh thanks for introducing me to robin boyd he's, he's another one in my silo oh thanks matt and thanks jess thanks matt really enjoyed it